Not many people realize, but code is a living thing. It's never done, actually. It's, it's continuously evolving. And most of the cost is not incurred during its inception, but rather during its maintenance and continuously improving it and continuously delivering value to the users. Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we're talking to Nikos Siausis. Nikos, in many ways, defined what it means to be a machine learning engineer at Quantum Black. You'd never guess his background was in predicting bone fractures and building karaoke software, but his unconventional past has led to him delivering exceptional work across multiple industries and building some of our most successful products internally. If you're curious about the role of a machine learning engineer, this interview is for you. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode. I have to admit, in the intro, I'm not entirely convinced I nailed the pronunciation of your name, Nikos. So for our listeners, could you correct any mistakes I might have made? You, you've made no mistake. Thank you very much, James, for having me. My name is Nikos Tausis. I know it's a mouthful for uh, any non-Greeks to pronounce, but there you go. Thank you very much. Okay, you've introduced yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about you? What's your background and how did you find your way to Quantum Black? Sure. So um, I'm from Greece. I grew up there, uh, went to school over there, and then came here in the UK for my studies. I spent almost 10 years of my life uh, at a little town called Cambridge. Uh, I studied at Cambridge University. I did an engineering degree. It's general engineering, so you get exposure to mechanical, civil, electrical, and electronic engineering really learned how to problem solve, how to break down problems into little chunks that you can tackle piece by piece. And after my undergraduate studies, I moved on and did a master's in information and computing engineering, which is actually when I discovered my passion for software engineering. At that time, I also discovered my passion for research, which led me to my next step, which was pursuing a PhD in medical imaging at the machine learning laboratory of Cambridge University. Wow. What was the mission there? What was the purpose of the research? So it's, it's actually an interesting story because the professor I admired the most, who did, like he taught the, the subjects I enjoyed the most, um, which were around computer graphics and also computer architecture and hardware design. He offered a project around medical imaging. It was about reconstructing human bones, specifically the human femur. The idea here is that uh, human femurs are really fragile and it's actually a quite big problem, especially for uh, women. So up to a third of women over 50 years old will fracture their femur and up to a third of them uh, might die due to fracture-related complications. So it's super important really to find uh, new novel ways of predicting fracture risk. And what we aimed for was to create software that uses multiple X-rays from different orientations 
to create 3D reconstructions of the bone and then from them you can measure structural defects on the bone. You can, you can think of the bone as having a very tough uh, but very thin shell. It's called the cortex and this is what provides up to 90% of the strength. Uh, inside you've got the trabecular bone which uh, doesn't, doesn't contribute that much. Our hypothesis was that the cortex thickness can be a novel predictor for fracture risk. And you can measure the cortex really accurately using CT scans, which give you a full three-dimensional view of the bone. But it's really hard to do so from X-rays, which are just planar projections of the bone. Now, if you get multiple X-ray orientations from equipment that's routinely available, uh, then you can perform these reconstructions and using ML and prior knowledge, you can uh, infer, let's say, the, the, the thickness of the bone. The sad thing, if you want, about this research is that eventually it led uh, to the conclusion that with the current equipment, it's not possible to do it very accurately for the most prominent uh, fracture types. But we found for some atypical fractures further down the bone, it's, it, 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 they're quite accurate and you can actually improve the prediction accuracy uh, of whether someone is likely to fracture their bone. That is fascinating. I'm now even more curious about how you ended up at Quantum Black. How did you go from a research mission like that to becoming head of machine learning at QB? I think what I'm going to say next probably will be a surprise to you because I didn't go into ML straight, actually. Uh, during my PhD, you know, coding is my passion. So I, I always try to find time to do my own side projects. So I, I got my hands dirty into Android development, so uh, coding for Android phones. And I built a game. Actually, it's the, the favorite game I play with my friends. It's called Whist. It's a quite popular game in the US, actually. Uh, it's a very simplified version of Bridge, if you know this one. Okay. So I created this one, and launched it in the App Store. I got around 40,000, 50,000 downloads, but never monetized it. It was just a fun pet project. And um, like I, I also decided to open source it. It's, it's on my GitHub. And in the meantime, as I, as I was looking for a permanent job, um, I found an opportunity to work as a contractor for a karaoke software company. Okay. So uh, what I ended up doing is uh, I spent three or four months recreating the software of this karaoke company, uh, which is now actually deployed in many bars across London. Uh, if you go, I have you, to you... Uh, ask at this point, what, what was the song you used to test your karaoke software? You're an engineer, right? So you're testing it. What were you singing? I actually do have recordings, but I don't recall what was the song, but I, I can recall myself singing along as I was testing it. It was a funny, funny engagement. Okay, so you went from whist to karaoke. Yep. And after that, I had to leverage my, like everything Cambridge taught me really, I had to go back to science and like mathematics. It's what I loved doing and what I missed. And I stumbled upon Quantum Black. Uh, it was just after the acquisition from McKinsey, actually. Mm -hmm. So uh, the team back then was just 60, 65. I think I was employee number 65. Okay. And I had uh, an initial chat with uh, our CTO, it's one of our founders, Sam. 
it was super interesting where back then we weren't called machine learning engineers actually we were called analytics engineers and everyone back then was trying to define the role and understand what we should be doing really and i remember to this day actually some drawing a venn diagram and talking about the people the technology and the processes and how analytics engineers can be at the center of that gluing uh, these three key pieces together i'd love to stay on that topic for a moment the, the role of a machine learning engineer is still relatively new in the industry and the definition of the role is arguably still a bit gray as well could you elaborate on the role of a machine learning engineer at qb what are their responsibilities for sure. And if you look around many companies, you'll see that still the descriptions vary a lot. So I'll just focus on how we describe it uh, within our company and how we perceive it and how we position it. So if, if I had to explain what a machine learning engineer is in one sentence, I'd say that uh, it's someone who's sitting at the intersection between software engineering and data science. And you know, Data scientists have great foundations in maths, statistics, but they've never been trained to be uh, proper software engineers. They, they lack, in many cases, uh, like software engineering best practices. And no one's to blame them, really. They, they, they have to deal with so many things that you can't expect them to also know how to write, write production-level software. Now, if you, if you look at least in Quantum Black, one of the beauties of machine learning engineers is the great diversity of skill sets. You'll see people who are mostly focused, let's say, on the software engineering side of things. You'll see others who prefer to deal uh, with DevOps and MLOps um, type of work. And you'll see others who are very keen to get their hands dirty in data science, actually. But they also have uh, significant training in terms of software engineering and know how to properly structure software, architect it in a way uh, that's deployable and maintainable as a production uh, software. Got you. Could you maybe reflect on why you think this role has emerged and why it's become so important in the space of advanced analytics? Maybe, maybe a good analogy I can do here is compare academia with industry. So in academia, in many cases, if you're, if you're doing research, you have a hypothesis that you need to verify. And to do that, it's, in many cases, it suffices to just uh, do some experiments with your own scripts that you're just going to run on your own laptop and you can verify through various techniques. Now, the, dif the big difference with the industry is that uh, in the industry, the, the, the tooling and the products you're building are deployed and they're running live in production and they're supposed to drive business decisions, which means that uh, you need to make sure that they're resilient to failure, they're scalable, they're continuously available, uh, there's enough harnesses in place to make sure that if something goes wrong, it won't have a, a massive impact on your business. And these products really drive key decisions for businesses. So it's, it's very important to adhere the, like the uppermost engineering, like best practices. Understood. So during your time at Quantum Black Nikos, you've worked on both client facing projects where we're serving organizations and helping them unlock the power of advanced analytics, but you've also worked on a lot of our internal products. 
Could you talk about your experiences on those projects specifically and, and, and how that intersects with the products you've been building? So initially I, I got involved in client engagements and I've done a lot of work in the pharma industry, uh, in the retail industry, and also in energy. Maybe examples are uh, clinical trial optimization. So how can you increase the speed of uh, clinical trials, maybe reduce the footprint or the cost of them? I've done projects in energy, which was about predictive maintenance of wind turbines uh, using deep learning. And then on the retail space, I've done projects on markdown optimization, which means like if a new, uh, a new version of a product comes along, how do you reduce the price of older versions to make sure that you get rid of the stock, but still you get enough profit and transition successfully to the new version? or range optimization, how many different types of a, of a product you want to have on, on the shelves. Now, from actually from my first project, which was uh, clinical trial optimization in the pharma industry, I was always thinking how I can make uh, my workflows most efficient. And not only for me, actually, for the teams I've been working. And as I started this one, there, it was quite early days actually for machine learning in production, which meant that there, were, there wasn't that much tooling really to facilitate this type of work. And I started working on a pet project, which we called back then Carbon AI. And this was really a library, a framework to facilitate building machine learning pipelines. This was um, the early days of Kedro, really, what we call Kedro now. We've open sourced it. Uh, and it's really uh, a way to embed best engineering practices if you want to uh, data science and machine learning. It facilitates collaboration across machine learning engineers, data scientists, data engineers, uh, allows them to collaborate efficiently on a big analytics project. Uh, like the, the problems we solve are quite involved and require hundreds if not thousands of hours from uh, multidisciplinary teams coming together, uh, which is, introduces a lot of complexity and risk. Now, I joined very early, early days in Quantum Black, as I said, and one of the key things we were missing back then was standardization and consistency. And the engagements we do with clients are of varying duration, really. You, you can have a POC or inside projects which might last a couple of weeks, and then you can have projects which might last for years. So imagine people moving uh, across projects and everyone coming in with their own background, their own ways of working. It's, it's a significant uh, hit, really, to the productivity of the team until everyone is on board and everyone aligns with how everyone else works really slows you down so one of the one of the key things we like back then i am to solve with carbon ai was consistency creating a unified way with which everyone uh, like if you were onboarded into a new project you're immediately familiar with the structure the ways of working and the like conventions on how to develop these solutions that's super interesting because I guess what you're describing there is ultimately a massive benefit to, to the organization, which is that we're driving consistency and standardization. But that's not necessarily how Kedro is 
pitched to our teams and users, is it, you know, that, that it's actually about saving time by reusing things that are available via that framework to make sure that they can spend more time on solving problems. Exactly. So it's not only about the standardization, it's about reuse, code reuse and saving time, really. There's certain operations that data scientists, data engineers uh, would repeatedly do, like connecting to cloud storage solutions uh, and also stitching together complex pieces of work. Back then, we supported more than one languages. Actually, the, the, the first version of Kedro was written in Scala because we were using a lot of uh, Spark back then. Now we use primarily PySpark. But uh, you, you would have people in the same team. Some of them would code in R, some, some in Scala, some in Python. And there, we were seeking for a way to foster collaboration between them without forcing them. We, want, we always wanted for people to use the, the things they, they loved and they were best at. It actually feels like an eternity ago that we open sourced Kedro, but that process took time. And I guess it's also come a long way since then. This is correct. And it was uh, a key milestone, I would say, for Quantum Black. Uh, we, we actually worked for, uh, I would say, more than two years to open source it. So I talked about the early days of Kedro, but uh, since then, so many different things have happened. And Kedro is, is not a, a, a personal project. It's way more than that, really. It wouldn't be possible without the collaboration of product managers, engineers, designers, even marketing, uh, like Infosec. There's tens of people who came together to uh, arrive at what we today call Kedro. So you identified this pain point on your projects around a lack of consistency and standardization around our engineering practices. And a group of you created Carbon AI, now Kedro, to help address that challenge. You touched on the reusability benefits earlier, but I know you've also been involved in other initiatives to try and further drive that within Quantum Black. Can you tell us a little bit more about those efforts? Definitely, definitely. So uh, Kedro solved consistency and standardization and partly also solved reusability in terms of mainly like software engineering components like connecting to data sources on the cloud or databases or on-premise. Uh, but then since once we had this foundation, we went back to a problem that we've been trying to tackle from the beginning actually, which was about reusability in data science. And this inspired the creation of a program called Alchemy. And Alchemy was really a collection of data science and data engineering specific libraries. So yeah, we, we ended up building, I think, around nine or ten libraries uh, around the areas of explainability, fairness, counterfactual analysis. We built custom models that were interpretable by design. We looked at data validation and defensive programming, harnessing the data pipelines, and we made sure that we uphold the best engineering practices. Uh, we made sure that the code is super well tested because as I said before, these things uh, are deployed and run in production and drive business decisions. So we need to be 100% sure that they actually uh, do what they uh, promise to do. And we, we created product teams to build and maintain these tools. Uh, we worked in very close collaboration with the client and the client serving teams. And maybe at this point I should mention how 
privileged we are to work alongside our users because one of the key aspects of product development is to continuously seek user feedback and continuously like try to to solve what actually matters for them and one of the big lessons i've learned over these four years is that your impression of what's important and what's the the what will have the biggest impact in most cases does not align with what your users want they are on the ground they know what's important and having a close feedback loop between the product team and the users who actually in our office sit a couple of desks away from us is super useful to iterate and continuously improve these products that's awesome what a fantastic learning I've actually heard a great story about Alchemy that I think is a super interesting example of the tough decisions our product teams have to make almost on a daily basis. We have to ruthlessly prioritize which ideas and products we invest in, and we have limited resources, so not every idea can be developed, and some that are already in flight have to be paused. This story actually concerned a library that you were developing with the team to improve our data validation capabilities. I think it was called Defender. But the team had to make the tough decision to pause developing that library, can you tell us a little bit more about that decision and why it was made? Of course. And actually, this touches on a very important thing. That let me start by saying that, that code is a living thing, right? It's never done. You start building something and you need to continuously maintain it. Otherwise, it will just die in a cell. So actually... Most of the cost, uh, it's not incurring during its inception, but it's, it's during its maintenance, really, and continuously developing and improving it. Yeah, so, so we built this library defender, which actually got great adoption amongst our users and great feedback. But at some point, we, we had to make a, a quite tough decision. You know, as I said, most of the cost goes towards maintaining these products. And... In the meantime, there was another library called Great Expectations, which was picking up uh, in the industry. In many respects, they were well ahead of us. For example, in terms of visualizing the validation results. And we had to, to consider, like, it's, it's a buy versus build decision here, right? So you can either commit to resources and keep maintaining and building and potentially catching up with uh, competitors in the industry. Or you could, let's say, stop the development and then see how you can best integrate with these open source offerings. And what we did was we did an evaluation. Uh, we, we considered the benefits and the drawbacks. And we ended up uh, deciding to pause the development and instead build an integration with this library. So we ended up building an integration between Kedro and Great Expectations, essentially making it trivial for someone to integrate Great Expectations into their Kedro pipelines. So retrospectively, looking back, I think that was a great decision, actually. Uh, currently, Great Expectations is the dominant player in the space of data validation. And we're receiving great feedback from our users. They enjoy using Kedro with great expectations a lot. The reason I find this story interesting is because you, you don't always hear about these sorts of decisions. You hear about the products that were successful and found an audience, but that's not always the case. I also think it's a, a great example of a team having to make a tough decision that they might not have necessarily enjoyed making. 
but is ultimately the right decision for our users. It is very true. And actually, if you talk to software engineers, maybe it will sound funny, but I, I would say that they're even emotionally attached to the products they build. <laughs> and making a decision to stop something like that yeah. has, a, has a significant impact. Uh, but yeah, I guess uh, the, you always have to do such hard decisions. But I guess it was the right decision for our users and the business, and that has to trump everything else, right? I, I'd like to think so. <laughs> awesome. So we've talked about Kedro and driving consistency amongst our engineers. We've talked about Alchemy, creating reusable libraries and the tough decisions teams have to make about either committing to or pausing an idea. What's the next big problem space for Nikos? So if, if I'm looking ahead, I guess one of my key personal objectives is finding ways of having our scientists and engineers focus on the problems that matter rather than spending loads of time recreating things or like dealing with mundane things that you, you'll have to do on every project. And we do have product teams which build libraries and frameworks to facilitate the day-to-day -day job of data scientists and data engineers. But I think if we look at the industry as a whole and how it has evolved over the past years, I think we can get great inspiration from the open source model. The software engineers have a probably the best community you can find. There's Everyone is keen to collaborate and contribute. And the biggest libraries you'll see out there are only possible because loads of people from around the globe come together to create them. Now, you can always keep building these libraries, but if you don't leverage the community, you'll never end up with uh, the, the next big thing if you want. So we're seeking for ways to facilitate collaboration across data scientists and data engineers. And we, we currently have a, a product which we call Bricks. Essentially, it's a place where everyone can host code it's kind of a code sharing platform, but with best practices embedded. So instead of just uploading code snippets, we have tight integrations with GitHub and everything that's uploaded will run through continuous integration, continuous deployment systems. It will get tested, it will get lifted, documentation will be built. And Bricks is a place where we bring everything together and we surface all these nice things. We've got code, documentation, tests all bundled together. We make sure that it's discoverable and explorable. And we, we're seeking for, for ways to engage the community and have them collaborate on them. And you know, libraries are very expensive to build. You need product teams. You need a quite big theme if you want to, to focus on. You can't have a library that does a bit of this and a bit of that, then it's very hard to use. Instead, we decided to, again, get inspired by software engineering and think about modularity and how we can create really portable uh, modular components that are really easy to integrate to your projects. They're easily shareable and they can actually accelerate massively 
how we, we develop our analytic solutions. And we, we put a lot of effort actually recently into developing solutions that tackle verticals. Let's say we're working on optimizing factories that do mineral extraction or uh, optimizing clinical trials again for, for pharmaceuticals. But all of these verticals essentially are a collection of horizontal components. If you think of a, a machine learning pipeline, you've got initially some data ingestion, you're then doing some data preparation, data cleaning, wrangling, uh, you are uh, creating domain models, and then you, you're doing feature engineering, feature selection, you're doing model validation and model evaluation. After that, you might have a reporting layer and explainability or fairness layer. All these different stages of the machine learning pipeline, they're essentially horizontal components and there's no need to, in many cases, you can, you can get up to 80% of the work by reusing these components that we're sharing on bricks. Awesome. So we've gone from consistency to reusability to now driving acceleration. And not only accelerating, it's actually about also enabling uh, new opportunities So uh, and also reducing risk. All of the things we build are really well tested. Uh, we also have a very fast path from R&D to production because now we've standardized how we do research and development. We have very tangible and measurable outputs. Everything R&D does has a very consistent structure. It's really well tested. Uh, it's shared in a way that's easily, uh, that very easily integrates, for example, with Kedro and you can pull it into your client engagements. So I think we, we found a way to move state-of-the-art research into the hands of our clients. Epic. So if anyone's interested in that challenge, they should get in touch. For sure. Thank you very much, Nikos, for spending this time talking to us. It was a pleasure, James. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tillman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Rettig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com. Thank you.